Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Mergers and acquisitions have been a hot topic in both the asset management and platform space as a wave of consolidation continues to grip both markets. In the asset management space, major names like Jupiter and Merion have taken part in the trend, while advisor platforms continue to be snapped up by big asset managers and private equity firms alike. Both sectors are experiencing a downward pressure on fees, and many firms within the market have seen a difficult year as assets under management tumbled in March as global markets crashed. So what does the future hold for these industries, the cornerstones of advisors' interactions? I'm Imogen Chu, reporter at FD Advisor, and joining me today to discuss the topic is Ben Yearsley, investment consultant at Fairview Investing, and Mike Barrett, consultant at the Lancat. Welcome to you both. Thanks very much for joining us. Hi, Imogen. Hi, Imogen. So, Mike, how big of a deal has this trend been for these industries, in particular platforms? What has this done to the, to the platform space? I think at the time of recording, it feels like there's some reasonably significant change about to happen in the platform space. So there's uh, been a lot of reported changes and a lot of announcements. So the week started off with Parminion being announced as being up for sale from, from Standard Life Investments. And then yesterday, Wednesday, we had the announcement from Nucleus that they'd had some reasonably serious approaches from both Transact and also James Hay in partner with their private equity investors and a couple of other kind of semi-serious approaches to Nucleus as well. Um, Word on the street is that there's, this is maybe not tip of the icebergs, maybe exaggerating it, but I think there's a couple of other things bubbling around, which we hear as well. But a lot of this tends to be driven, I think, um, by a couple of things on the platform space where I think you can look at things on a positive basis and it's a reasonably buoyant sector. Um, a lot of the firms who listed in the last couple of years, so businesses like Transact, AJ Bell, et cetera, have done really, really well in terms of growing their businesses, growing their market share and growing their share price quite significantly. So we hear a lot of private equity and investment people wanted to get get a slice of that action. I think you could maybe look at it a little bit more negatively and yeah, it's been a tough year for flows and it's getting distribution is even more important than it's ever been with with advisors coming under pressure as well. So maybe there's kind of there's kind of drivers in both directions in terms of the consolidation action that's that's taking place. I think one of the problems is that that price is such an important thing. Ultimately, you know, platforms are providing a custody custody service, aren't they? You know, they are holding your asset or your clients' assets. And what is the real price or what is the what should be the fair price for that? And I do wonder whether there's going to be some a lot of cost pressure coming through in the industry. I think the I think it was eighteen months ago, wasn't it, when uh, clients started getting the, the the breakdown of costs and pounds and pence from from manager taking from it. What's the platform taking? What's the what's the advisor taking? And I think that's been a big driver of of, of a lot of things, and certainly cost pressure has come of, come as part of that. As investors actually look properly at what they are paying for their financial life, and, and therefore, I suppose from that, I think mergers are probably you know uh, one way of reducing costs in order to to become more efficient. Do you think that's what's kind of underpinning the trend in the asset management? world as well. I mean, I mentioned Jupiter and Merriam, but there's been more than I can count on one hand of these major kind of uh, mergers. What's 
what, what's the point in those asset management firms doing that? Is it a good kind of um, way to grow? Oh, God, no. Uh, cost pressure, definitely. Um, oh, cost pressure. <laughs> it is cost pressure, you know. And I, I think you can look at the listed asset management space differently to the unlisted asset management. So the private asset management companies different to the listed ones. You know, the listed ones like Jupiter have a pressure from their shareholders to grow. They've got high cost base. They've got old legacy funds that are expensive. And they're feeling the pain. I can't remember what the share price of Jupiter has done, but it's, you know, it's, it's tanked over the last few years. And, um, you know, one way of satisfying your shareholders is buying. And if you can pick up another asset management company on the cheap, then in theory, you can strip out, you know, at least one layer of cost. You know, you, you merge Marion and Jupiter. You've got two sales teams, two marketing teams, two website costs, two everything. And you can strip a hell of a lot of costs out of that by just, you know, ditching half of those people. It sounds harsh, but it's true. Um, I'm not sure it worked. I'm not a great... I, I, I've yet to see a really successful merger. Although, to be fair, Premier Mighton seems to be going pretty well, actually. And they're attracting new fund managers and, and, and flows, actually, into the business. So that's one that... Yeah, they're both listed, but actually it's a smaller one rather than... It's the giants when they merge. They, they're the ones that tend mm. to fail. But going back to your question, yeah, it's cost pressure, I think. Um, you've got so many layers of costs and investors advisors everybody is getting more focused on what is the cost of investing and say legacy businesses are too expensive if you're you know you, it's easier if you're a challenger starting up coming in with a 50-bit fund you know and you can take money and and the listed companies especially have a problem because they can't chop their fees so easily yeah and i think on the on the platform side again um would agree with ben it's 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 cost pressure it, i think it's a, maybe a slightly different kind of uh, dimension to all of this where it's certainly kind of the the, the margins are under pressure in, in platforms and and as Ben said they they've come under kind of increased pressure with the transparency that's happened in the last in the last few years we certainly see through our research at the Lancat most advisor firms with any sort of significant scale are able to command special deals with with platforms so um, significantly below what is kind of quoted as the rack rate of the platform and that's that again that's kind of that downward pressure is challenging enough in the good times but um, the last 12 months have have obviously not been particularly great for for gross flows onto a platform the, the net position is holding up reasonably well and that's yeah, I'm sure that's created quite a few quite a few um, kind of concerns with it. Ult ultimately, I think a lot of people have thought for a long while the the platform space is is increasingly a scale game. If your if your margins are so thin, you need to have the scale to be able to generate the returns that, in a lot of cases, you need simply to stand still. Sure, and so if cost is kind of the the backbone to these things happening or, or the driver. Um, I mean, what's the impact on advisors? I mean, do, do you think they see a better service when these asset management firms merge? Do they see better performance? Do they see a better fund range? I don't, I don't think there's any evidence. Actually, to be fair, there's probably no evidence either way that they're good or bad. It's probably random luck um, whether they work. And I think certainly in the period uh, post-merger, so in a couple of years post-merger, I think it's probably worse news because there's lots of instability you look at Aberdeen Standard I mean that's mm. the poster child for probably one of the least well performing mergers of all time probably it's just been pretty disastrous 
Um, sure. Jupiter Merion, you know, it's too early to say. I personally, you know, with with various hats, you know, we've been selling out of Jupiter and Merion funds. So I don't think it will go down well. There's always classic clashes of cultures, different to pl platforms where you don't have the culture thing so much, but certainly in fund management, you've got clash of cultures, you've got different styles, you've got just, you know, lots of big egos, dare I say. You know, fund managers aren't the most, um, uh, they're not lacking the ego, are they, most of them? And when you put those all together, when you force them together, it's not always a happy marriage. Sure. And... Um Mike, obviously, we've seen um, re-platformings go awry when we try and kind of merge two different technologies. Um, there, are, I know there's been concerns uh, raised about Nucleus, about Transact. It's on a completely different tech base to uh, Nucleus and how that would possibly work. I mean, uh, what, what kind of issues arise for advisors from platform m &A? Yeah, I mean, I think this is certainly for advisors in this space, there's, there's no need to to press the panic button and start to move assets and shift assets around now if you're involved in if you're using any of the platforms which are kind of up for sale or are being speculated but absolutely you need to keep an eye on this very very closely um, if you look at mergers and particularly technology mergers and migrations in the platform space there is not one single recorded instance of those projects going to plan and by plan there it's kind of it's without causing disruption to advisors, without being delayed or without being significantly over budget. And in some cases, in some cases, all, all three of those. I think you were, again, we're kind of, we're, we're speculating here for Transact and Nucleus. Um, Ben's point about culture, I think is really important for those businesses because if you ask advisors, what's the strength of those businesses? Um, their respective audience will say the culture, the people that run the business, the people that set up the business and have kind of led those businesses for, for, for a long while. And I think advisors have to ask themselves, A, what happens if that culture, if, if those people start to be disrupted and potentially potentially exit the business? And that's not only leadership, but the, the kind of the, the hands-on people, the people on the, on the end of the phones giving the service. And also, frankly, those businesses, as successful as they've been, they've got no experience whatsoever in delivering a merger or an acquisition. So it's a pretty steep learning curve, whichever direction that goes. So, again, do you, Mike, do, do, you see, do you see more deals like the M&G Eccentric deal, Mike? I think that goes back to my distribution point, Ben. So mm. actually, um, I think there's obviously quite a bit happening in, in, in the M&G world in terms of their investment proposition, but certainly the attraction of uh, a platform which, which is reasonably used by, by advisors, um, it's essential it, obviously not the biggest, not certainly not the smallest, but also just gone through that technology migration. So a, a, you would hope at kind of the... Um, it's like the it's like the old ad um, poster on a on a factory. It's one day since our our last accident, um, they, <laughs> yeah, Eccentric have got a long time until they're going to have to do any real technology heavy lifting as well. And yeah, I think for for a lot of asset managers, yeah, getting that that foot into the market is is attractive, but it's it, again, it's skill set, it's people. Um, just because you're a good fund manager and you've got all of that those skill sets uh, within that business doesn't mean you've got the skill set to run a platform they're, they're they're very very different businesses it was interesting talking to advisors about the parmenian sale um when kind of 
I put the proposition to them, you've probably got three likely buyers. You've got private equity firms, you've got an asset manager who doesn't have a platform, or you've got a platform or an asset manager already with a platform. Um, and the advisors that I spoke to were like, we want private equity because we because they love Parminian and they say we don't want anything to change. We just surely, surely private equity is going to be the worst for that though. I was going to say, careful well, what you wish for. Well, yeah, private yeah. equity coming in isn't. Uh, maybe there's this view of private equity, but you know they want their pound of flesh and they're going to be they're going to be really really yeah. trying, uh, uh, you know, putting the nail in and, and making them work and probably lots of cost pressures again mm. so that's what i thought and advisors did caveat it with that but i think they've just experienced so many negative effects of platforms merging or asset managers taking over platforms and trying to kind of merge technology or put their own stamp on things that they were actually like we like Parmini as a standalone business that never kind of felt part of the standard life brand or range of products and they kind of they really wanted it to just stay the same that was their kind of biggest well, fear never, well actually funny enough it was never standard life was it, it was Aberdeen that bought it was Aberdeen it. yeah sure yeah so for one second but I, I don't think platforms and fund managers are, are natural bedfellows. I, I, you know, they're, they're, mm. they're, you know, as Mike was saying, they're different skill sets, different, you know, looking for, to do different things. And I don't, I don't see this rush. I don't see why there is this rush to buy them or to have them. Um, I, you know, you go back to the well before your days, Imogen. You know, why? How did co-funds now Egon set up? It was four of the fund management groups who didn't want to uh, Fidelity having controlling the whole distribution market um, and which I thought was, was interesting but that, at that point it was a fair point you know Fidelity were the only platform effectively back in 2001 or whenever it was and Aegon was born out of a desire to um, not see them dominate the market because they thought Fidelity would push flows all their way but I still even 20 years later I still don't see why fund managers want a platform business low margin high risk high risk of of technology cock-ups and things like that why do they want one and i think particularly as well ben you add on the kind of the um the increasing use of as you said centralized investment propositions it's roughly 50 50 on our research with advice firms who are outsourcing to a a discretionary fund manager using model portfolios so that's a really dominant part so even if you have got this platform and advisors are using it, it could be somebody else who's actually making the investment decision whether whether or not to use your funds or not. So if you're using the platform as kind of the, the Trojan horse to drive flows into your funds, then maybe the advisor isn't the right person to be to be driving towards. Mm, I agree. Interesting. Um, moving slightly more onto the asset management side of things, do you think some fund managers have the wrong proposition for the modern retail investing world. Why are some fund managers struggling at the moment, Ben? Um, I don't think it's necessarily the wrong proposition. Um, you are going to get different styles and how so you've got value houses, you know, Invesco, for example, uh, also sure. in the UK business was famously a, a value house when it was, you know, from the old perpetual business. So you have styles that come in out of fashion and clearly if you've had a growth fund management house, you've had a decade of, of everything in your favour, give or take the odd three, four month period. Um, but that's not to say that, you know, value has, well, over the last month, value's definitely made a recovery. Look at last month's performance and clearly all the value funds are at the top as, as they all bounce back. 
So it's, I wouldn't say that culture and style, style is a problem. I'd say it's, it's the cost base is more of the issue. Going back to what I was saying about Jupiter, now I think Jupiter's funds are expensive. And um, is the merger with Marion going, to, Marion going to be able to change that? Maybe it will be because they can strip costs out and therefore they might must lower the fees. And I think some of the older groups have got these big legacy books of business. They've got a share price to defend profits. You know, the city expects a level of profit. And they can't compete when, you know, the new challenges, you know, Artemis's corporate bond fund launched, launched 18 months ago at 35 bips or whatever it was, 36 bips. Mm. Now, a Jupiter can't really compete with that that easily because they've got a big, such a big back book of business that, you know, suddenly you, you drop the, 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 you know, two billion pound fund from 80 to 40 bips. You're working off a huge amount. I mean, that's just straight from the bottom line. So, and that's, I think, the biggest problem for lots of the listed farm management groups. But I wouldn't say style. I, don't, I wouldn't say companies are outdated or anything else. Um, because that's, I suppose, more about what, what the trend and what the focus of the market is at the time. And at the moment, it hasn't been a value market. It's been a growth market. Hence, the likes of Invesco have struggled. And, and, and you know, arguably, Jupiter have got a bit more of a, a value style as well. Sure. So again, we're back to costs. Mike, what, what do you think? Yeah, I, th I think for me that, that there's certainly an argument that the the asset management sector is kind of it's oversupplied. I don't think I don't think the UK needs to have thirty thousand funds or however many they are there. And to kind of jump into your point around kind of the model, the modern retail investor, I think it's more around the, the probably the more fundamental challenges of of trying to engage that investor can communicate to them the standard of kind of communication and digital communication and digital channels for for most of these fund groups is is pretty poor and and even if you look at some of the people who are kind of perhaps the more progressive around all of this so the likes of vanguard and all the rest of it um you still you don't have to go too far through that particular proposition to find yourself immersed in the in the detail of the complexity, which is still inherent within the asset management world. And I think there's maybe just kind of a, a sector-wide challenge around stripping away that some of that complexity and, yeah, do investors really need to have pages and pages of cost and charges disclosure sent to them every single quarter when they're investing on a platform? Or is there something a little bit more simpler and, and digital, which they can, which people, which you can be using to communicate with them? I think that, that feels to me a little bit more fundamental than, yeah, are there, is it, is it, have we got the right type of funds? Have we got the right type of investments? So it's more to do with how those funds and investments are portrayed to the potential investors and investors rather than kind of the, the yeah. setup they already have. Yeah, and, and there's, there's, there's nothing which makes me sound like an old git more than talking about the youngsters these days and what they <laughs> want. But I think the, the way people consume and access information now and use the internet to validate kind of decisions which they've, if kind of started to mentally make already and they're using social proof and various other evidence points um, is it doesn't align itself with, yeah, here's a four page kit, which will give you all of the disclosure you need for your funds. That's that feels very, very old world to, to, to me. Sure. What, do you agree, Ben? Do you think we need to simplify kind of the information investors receive? Yeah, it's complicated. You know, if you know, there's two different markets. We've got the the, the advice market clearly, which is one thing, uh, and then you've got the D2C market. And 
and the D2C market. Well, both actually both sides need to attract new investors, don't they? You know, if, if your old investors are dying off and you're not replacing them, then your business is going to suffer. So all both sides of the, the financial market, oh, advice and D2C, need to attract new customers. And from that point of view, it needs to be simple, straightforward, easy to understand, and catering to what, what you know, what the next generation want. There's, you know, there's huge amounts of wealth transfer going to come through in the next, you know, decade or a few decades. And it'd be very easy for that to flow out of the industry if you don't engage with the next generation of investors, the, the, the you know, 20s and 30s. Even if they haven't got any money at the moment, they will do at some point. Sure. It's interesting um, that we've seen stuff like um, the DIY platforms like AJ Bell and Hargreaves Lansdowne that kind of have this really digital focused proposition doing so well over the kind of um, latter half of this year where basically from new customers kind of flocking to these platforms. Mm. So kind of backs up our point here. Don't forget, it's great. I mean, the IFA market has had a really tough time. You've got you know, the PI market is a disgrace, to be honest. Mm. Well, there's one or two providers now, and costs keep on going up and up and up. And the FCA will need to get a grip on that. The FCA levy keeps on going up and up, or the the, the, um, the compensation scheme levy keeps on going up and up. The IFA market's had a really tough time. It's no wonder they're selling out left, right, and centre. Um, it's not a, you know, it's, it's it, you know, if, if we want good financial advice in this country, something, you know, needs to happen in the advice market to, to make it tenable again properly. Yeah, and I think on the, go, going back to your, your point around the D2C platforms, Imogen, they, um, you're right, they have had a tremendously successful year. I think AJ Bell's results today, they're saying this is their best ever year. But it's also, I think, this this point around investment investor behaviour, it, it, it emphasises that point. Um, both all of the platforms which kind of position themselves as kind of sensible, safe, investing for the long term type platforms. They had a disastrous afternoon on the, I think it was the 9th of November, when when the vaccine announcement, the first one of those came through and there was a bit more certainty coming through on the US markets as well post-election. And mm-hmm. that their customers there were frantically trying to trade into a market which had already moved. So some fairly questionable, I think, investment behaviours there and certainly not the type of behaviours, investor behaviours that those businesses have been set up to serve. Sure. Um, So looking forward now, we're reaching kind of the end of the year. Um, Mike, what are the main threats and opportunities for the platform sector in 2021? I'm not sure there's a huge amount of opportunities, frankly. I think the the opportunities that are there perhaps in tight kind of maybe a kind of a bit of pent up frustration in terms of some of the flows and we might actually see a kind of more of a traditional old school tax year end where people hopefully start to come out of their shells in February and March and feel a lot more confident with investing. I think we might see a bit of a, a, a boost into some of the platform flows there. But I think you you look at the landscape of the platforms and start to kind of plot the the, the amount of people who are looking for ownership change, and yeah, there's going to be some there's going to be some winners in that. There's going to be some disappointed potential purchases in all of that as well. And also, I think the challenge we 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 alluded to earlier of of 
there is going to be private equity money, more private equity money, I think, coming into this sector. And it's not necessarily always going to be a bad thing. You look at the likes of 7IM, for example, functioning really well with, with, with that type of ownership structure. But there is disruption coming into the platform space and the platforms, the new owners need to ensure that the people involved in the platforms are taken along and supported and looked after. And very quickly that cascades, that kind of that positive support message needs to cascade into, into the advisors and the end clients. And for asset management, Ben, 2021 threats and opportunities. Uh, Many opportunities, you know, you've got, you've had a um, horrific year this year with, you know, you know, we've got Brexit to contend with still, which looks like it's, you know, finally coming to, to an end game. Vaccines coming through, brilliant. So the whole 2020 COVID things come to an end. Um, so actually, you, you turn into 2021 with a lot more optimism. Now, does that, so so equity markets are probably reasonably well set, despite the fact the US is expensive. Um, you know, the UK markets aren't, the Asian markets aren't, emerging markets aren't particularly. So you've got lots of reasonably priced markets. So from from, from that perspective, that's good news because um, you know more people favour equities over bonds uh, as long-term investors. I suppose that the, the the threats are more around: will people have new money to invest? You know, and I suppose that yeah, that's linked into the platform business as well, isn't it? Will there be spare cash? Mm. Will the average UK investor have enough spare cash in to, to invest more into which which will impact both asset managers and platforms? I suppose that's the biggest threat, isn't it? Where um, notwithstanding FCA doing something, you've got other issues out there, you've got inflation coming back, that's an, that's an issue. Cost pressure, I still still think, is probably the biggest issue for fund management groups and, and managing that, uh, to be honest. Sure. So will there be any money left to invest and will investors want to pay the price tag that fund managers are putting on the funds? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. That still sounds way better than 2020, so yeah, bring, bring, bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Mike and Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Thanks Imogen. Thanks for listening to the FT Advisor podcast. Welcome back to the FT Advisor podcast. Joining me now are Chloe Chum and Rachel Mortimer, reporters at FT Advisor. Hello. Hello. Morning. So, Rachel, last week we saw the long-awaited arrival of the FCA's review of the advice market since RDR and Pharma. Um, what did it tell us? Yeah, so it's been delayed a couple of times over the last 18 months, so it is, it is long-awaited. Um, but the results were a bit of a mixed bag. The FCA recognised that the industry has made improvements um, over the last few years, but it's a bit too slow for the regulators liking. Um, it warned of significant price clustering in the advice market um, and warned that there was too little competition. In particular, it said that um, advice firms, this was stopping advice firms from innovating, especially for less wealthy consumers. Uh, that obviously matches up with what we've sort of been seeing from our own experience of advisors sort of putting that 100 grand limit on the, the assets that clients are bringing over because it's just not profitable for them anymore. Um, but the FCA has certainly picked up on that those people with less money to invest are sort of getting cut out of the market. Um, the FCA really doubled down as well on its focus on robo-advice. We know that in the last sort of five years, robo-advisors have really struggled uh, to make a profit. Um, but 
the regulator picked up in this review that assets under sort of automated services actually jumped 700% in the last three years. It's 3.2 billion now um, in 2017 compared to 400 million just three years before. Again, it recognised that it's been slow to develop um, and there are several barriers sort of in the way of that. One which we have heard a lot about is that people sort of crave that human interaction with an advisor, especially if you're a first time investor, sort of the idea of going on an app or a website and doing it yourself is really daunting. And the FCA has recognised that. Um, it really put its way behind reaching those clients with fewer assets in, in their bank to invest um, and, and robo advice being a solution for that. Yeah, um, I think it said as well, didn't it, that kind of mentioned these kind of high street banks almost or like bigger um, investment banks that are backing these robos. We've seen that happen throughout the industry. I think, I mean, Barclays did an offer kind of uh, to try and entice people onto its robo advice. So I think those banks may be considered quite kind of favourably by the FCA looking forward as they're the ones that really have kind of the money and the backing to to, to bridge that gap. Um, how did the advice sector react to the FCA's findings? Um, again, I guess as is to be expected, it, it was split. So um, some people agreed with the FCA and said, actually, I think one person said that the, the sort of growth of financial advice has been, has been um, growing at a glacial pace. Others have agreed, yet yeah, that actually there's more to be done in terms of bringing costs down and innovating. Um, however, you know, other people made the very valid point that there's no wiggle room for costs at the minute, given how much it's costing advisors to run a business. You know, the PI issue and the FSCS levy and the rising regulation costs, they want to see something done about that by the regulator first or by the Treasury um, before they sort of look at bringing their own charges down, because ultimately they are running a business um, and there needs to be some sort of profit in in it for them as well to, to be able to keep running to keep running that service. Sure. So, kind of advice businesses are kind of being pulled in two directions by the regulator. You know, being asked to cough up more money and at the same time being asked to innovate and go out their comfort zone and serve less wealthy clients. Um, so, yeah, it seems like a bit of a catch twenty two for advice firms. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. I mean, do you think we'll we'll see any changes as a result of what the FCA has found for, from this review? I mean, as I said before, there was a, there was a big focus on robo advice in this paper, um, and the FCA certainly gave the impression that this is something that they'd be in favour of going forward. Um, but you know, as as one commentator picked up on, there wasn't really much action in this in this paper, and and the sort of um, the what if, it lacked a what if element, and that will be coming next year, I think is expected. Um, some people have suggested this will be the regulator doubling down on the on the prod rules, um, which sort of ins- are there to ensure that advisors are providing the right service for those clients. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it remains to be seen. And, and as I said, the this review itself was delayed over the last year and a half. And with all the work that the regulators sort of immediate work has got on its plate with coronavirus, um, it'll be it'll, it'll be interesting to see when this when any sort of firm action on this comes about. It will be interesting if the um, the regulator doubles down on kind of the prod client segmentation element. I think some people said that the idea that advisors have to segment their clients by target like what their target audience and 
those clients' needs. And by doing so, it's going to kind of encourage people to innovate to reach those less wealthy target clients. So, so yeah, maybe we'll see, you know, the rise of Robo and um, a double down on prod. So yeah. time will tell on that. Um, another very active market at the moment is the mortgage scene. Um, Chloe, can you tell us a bit about that? I mean, there's been a shortage of mortgages for borrowers with a 10% deposit. So those higher LTV mortgages, um, usually kind of first time buyers. But does this seem to be changing? Yes. So just a few examples. Accord had been offering 90% LTV mortgages for a few days at a time. But last month, they relaunched them on what they called a more consistent basis. Accord's parent company, Yorkshire Building Society, also launched a range of 90% LTV mortgages the week after. And other lenders, such as TSB and Virgin Money, also launched 90% LTV products in the first week of this month. What What's this against kind of a backdrop of, like, um, why has there been such a shortage of mortgages in this space before? Well, lenders reduced their maximum loan-to-value when physical valuations were restricted during the first lockdown. Some lenders returned to lending at 90% after the housing market came out of the first lockdown, but later withdrew because they received so many applications. If you have only a few lenders offering mortgages to 10% borrowers, they can get swamped with demand. So hopefully now that some lenders have announced their return, it should help to manage that demand. And I mean, is this kind of a, a silver bullet as such for these these type of borrowers, those ones with, with just a 10% deposit? Is is the return of these mortgages um, going to kind of cut the mustard? What, what are rates doing? Well, even though there are more products available at the moment, the rates do look a bit higher than they were this time last year. According to Money Facts, at the start of December last year, the average two-year fixed rate was 2.62% for a 90% LTV mortgage. But at the start of this month, the average rate was 3.79%. So that's more than one percentage point higher. And according to Moneyfax, that's the highest they've recorded since February 2015. Um, but one broker I spoke to said that rates will hopefully fall if more lenders return to lending at 90% LTV. Obviously, the rate that um, mortgages are, are set at has then impacts you know the clients that can afford that in terms of their monthly payments and when the bank of england stress tests them so it kind of feels a little bit i guess um we've we've heard on the grapevine as well that there's been tightened criteria from these lenders so kind of that they're, they're giving with one hand by coming back into the market but almost like taking with the other in mm. the sense that both the price and um the criteria is, is still blocking people from this market yeah and certainly for first-time buyers it's generally them with house prices and um, they've put down such a, such a big deposit in order to get on the housing ladder but at least the return of these high LTV mortgages is a step in the right direction cool um thank you for listening to the ft advisor podcast tune in next week for the next episode support for this podcast and the following message come from corient Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.